looked at this, we began looking at this last week. And we looked at the scriptures out of Roman where Paul Paul talked about unredeemed man being filled with all unrighteousness. Then we looked in Ephesians 5 where Paul contrasts you once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. You were sons of disobedience, but now in Christ we are sons of God. Amen. Ephesians chapter 5. Let's begin in verse 14. Let's read together. Therefore, he says, Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Now, we're talking about being filled with the Spirit. That we are designed to be filled. Paul here, when we looked at the Scripture from Acts chapter 4 last week, we kind of looked at this concept, in a, we looked at this from a corporate perspective. Remember, and it, it talked about the, the believers, the disciples, And we looked at the prayer that the disciples prayed in Acts chapter 4. And when they came back uh, together, they prayed this prayer that that they would be filled with boldness, that they would be able to speak the word with boldness. And it talked about them having all things in common, that they were in one accord of one heart and one soul and one accord, having all things in common. And that great grace was upon them. And we looked at this in a corporate sense, and we said that the mark of a spirit-filled church or a spirit-filled group of people was boldness, unity, love, and humility. And we equated grace when it says, and great grace was among them. We equated that with humility because the scripture says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so today, when we are, as we look at Ephesians chapter 5, we're, we're looking at this same concept of what does a spirit-filled life look like, but we see here that Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, he takes, uh, he takes this and he, he writes this and he puts it in much more personal terms. He's, he's really giving us a look at what our life uh, what this looks like in our life. So a lot of times we talk about these concepts. What does it mean to be spirit-filled? Or we talk about being spirit-filled. And, but, but what does that look like in our life, in reality? What does the world see if they see spirit-filled believers? Now we have, you know, in the church, we kind of, we live amongst each other, we come together, and we kind of develop our own language, our own way of talking, and we use terms that the world can't relate to, and we think in terms that it's hard for the world to relate to, and so we kind of create this little subculture, and, and so 
in some of our subcultures, when we talk about being spirit-filled, immediately, that's all I have to say, and some people are going to automatically go someplace, and in their mind, oh, this is what it means to be spirit-filled. And other people are going to go other places. But we need to kind of break out of those little subcultures and look at this from a different perspective, because our witness, what, remember, what is the point of God giving us his spirit. I mean, Jesus goes into great detail just before he is crucified, just before he leaves that upper room where they were having their last supper and goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. He goes into great detail in John 14, 15, and 16 about what's going to happen when the spirit comes and why he is sending the spirit, why it was to their advantage that he go away and he send the helper or the comforter. And and he said he's going to teach you, he's going to lead you, he's going to guide you, he's going to call to remembrance, he's going to testify of me, he's going to reveal those things that are mine that I have given to you. Uh, He's going to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Uh, He goes into this quite, quite a bit of detail about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then we see what he tells his disciples. He says, go to Jerusalem and wait. Go and wait for the promise of the Father, and you will be endued with power from on high. And when the Spirit has come, he said, you will receive power to do what? To be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So we see ultimately the purpose of the Spirit is that we would be a witness to Christ. And we can go all kinds of places with that, and, and that has huge implications in your life. And being a witness to Christ is not just you having the right information to communicate to people. It's not just you knowing the facts about Christianity. It really is so much more than that. It is about your life. It's about your lifestyle. It's about who you are. Not just on church, not just when you're on your mission. You know, well, today is the day that we're going to go out and witness for Christ, or we're going to go and pray, or we're going to go. No, this is about who you are on Monday morning when you go to work, or when you go to school, or, or while you're washing the dishes, or cook, whatever you're doing. This is who we are every day of our lives. Because if you are in Christ, if you are a believer, if you're a child of God, You're not just a child of God for a couple of hours on a Sunday morning, or you're not just a child of God when you do Christian things or church activities. If you're born again, then you are in Christ. Christ is your life, and that is your reality. That's who you are. That's your identity. And and so your life should reflect that. To be spirit-filled means that your life reflects that. Your life manifests the reality of God's Spirit on the inside of you. It has to. And so Paul, in writing here to the Ephesians, he's writing this in very personal terms. He's getting down to what this looks like in our life, how we relate, when we relate to one another, how we go through life day by day in all the circumstances that exist in our life. So let's look at this, these characteristics of a spirit-filled life. First, I want you to see that in verse 
18, Paul gives us a commandment. To be spirit-filled is not a suggestion. It is actually a commandment that is given to us in the Scripture. This is not a point of theology. This isn't about whether I believe uh, in the gifts of the Spirit or whether I don't believe in the gifts of the Spirit. See, we want to reduce it down to something like that that is so shallow compared to the reality of what God is talking about here. This isn't just about a theological point of view. This is, this is your life. And so to be filled with the Spirit is much greater than gifts or no gifts. This goes to the very core and the very character of who you are. If you are a Christian, your life should manifest the characteristics, the life and the nature of the one whose name you bear, Christ. This is what it means to be Spirit-filled. So for Christ to fill us, for the Spirit to fill us, and for that life and that nature and that character to be manifest through us, what is that going to look like in our lives? And so here's what Paul says. Number one, he says in verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine or don't be controlled by those things, by the lusts of the flesh, by, by those other things, but be controlled with, be filled with the Spirit. If I'm filled with the Spirit, to be filled with something, if, if you have a water bottle and it's full, then there's no room for anything else, right? And this, this is the picture, that we're filled with the Spirit of God, that there's, there's no room for anything else. So, you know, we kind of, sometimes we live our lives like this, like I'm, I'm a Christian today, but then tomorrow I'm not. See, church isn't a place you go once a week. Church is who you are. Nowhere in the Scripture do you get the sense that when Jesus talks about the church, when Paul or Peter or James or John talk about the church, they're never talking in terms of a building that they went to on Sunday morning. Never, ever, ever. We have created that concept. So it's fair to say in our cultural understanding of things, we're in church because we call this building a church. But if we want to have a true biblical understanding of what the church is, this building has nothing to do with the church. This building is just a facility that the church meets in because you are the church. The church is never in the scripture talked about in terms of buildings or facilities. It's always talked about in terms of people. So the people are the church. You are the church. So church isn't a place you go on Sunday morning. Church is who you are 24-7 for all eternity if you have been born again. So whether we want to accept it or not, tomorrow morning you're the church. You're not the church now because you're in church and it's Sunday morning. You're the church because you're in Christ. And whether you're in Christ has nothing to do with what day of the week it happens to be or what building you happen to be in or what activity you happen to be involved in. You are the church wherever you go, whatever you're doing, always, for all eternity, if you have been given the gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so we need to kind of get that 
we need to change that way of thinking. If that's kind of the way you think of church, it's a place I go, it's this building, it's this, no, it's who you are. And you never, ever, ever stop being the church. Never. If you're in Christ. So Paul is talking to the church and he says, this is your life. Be filled with the Spirit. Well, what does that look like? He says, well, this is what it looks like. Now, he gives us a description of what our life looks like if we allow the Spirit to control our lives or to govern our lives. So the Spirit is to control our attitude and our actions in our relationships with one another. The Spirit is to govern our relationships. So Paul says, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. The Spirit should govern our communication with one another. So something as simple as, how do you speak to one another? Husbands, wives, how do you speak to one another? Brothers, sisters, how do you speak to one another? Well, let's be honest. We're human, right? At least I am. And sometimes we let our emotions get the best of us, and we don't always speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, do we? I don't. But, but if I find myself communicating in a manner that is contrary to the Spirit of God that is in me, Remember, the spirit in me is to be governing, it's to be controlling my life, filling my life. When I find myself communicating in a way contrary to the spirit, what does the spirit inside of me do? It lets me know. It reminds me. Not, it's not a voice that comes out of heaven. It's, it's the small, still voice on the inside that says that communication is not consistent with the nature and the life of Jesus Christ. And so you can call that conviction, you can call it conscience, but it is the Spirit of God revealing. It's the Spirit, it's, here's, here is, it's the Spirit of God doing what David said God would do in Psalm 23. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So I'm going down the path of life, and all of a sudden, my communication becomes contrary to the nature and the character of Christ in me. And when, that, my, when my communication becomes contrary to that, and I diverge off that path of righteousness, let's just think of it in those terms, and I start going down a path that, that is not a good path, it's not the path God would have me go down, what does the Spirit of God do? The Lord is my shepherd. How does the Lord shepherd me? How does the Lord lead me and guide me? Well, as a believer, Jesus said, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and he's going to lead you and guide you. Jesus shepherds us by the ministry of the Holy Spirit on the inside of us. And so when my communication becomes contrary to the Spirit of God, the very nature of Christ himself, it is the good shepherd, it is the Holy Spirit inside of me that leads me back to the paths of righteousness for his namesake. He says that communication is contrary to Jesus Christ, to the nature that you've been given, to the life that is yours now, to Christ who is your life now. And so the Spirit of God brings me back. It's not punishment, it's protection. It's discipline. 
The reason the shepherd won't allow the sheep to stray away is because the shepherd loves the sheep and he knows the wolf is out there. And so the shepherd shepherds the sheep back on the right path because he loves the sheep. And this is the Spirit of God on the inside of us. The love of God manifests through the ministry of the Holy Spirit that that brings us back to the path of righteousness. So Paul says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. What is this? This is called edification. Edification, to edify. We see this word also in Ephesians. If you just look a few verses back in Ephesians chapter 4. At the end of verse 16, Paul is talking about the ministry of the body. He paints a a beautiful word picture here of how the body functions together, every part doing its, 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 uh, its share, supplying what the other needs by the effective working, uh, each part doing its share. And it's, at the end of the verse, he says, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. That word edifying just simply means building up. To edify means to build up. So, Speaking, how should we speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? So should our conversation, should our communication tear down or should our communication build up? Well, it should build up. Absolutely. Now, Paul says, or actually not Paul, it's uh, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, he says every time there is there every season... Everything, there is a season. There's a time to tear down. There's a time to build up. There's a time to pluck up. There's a time to plant. But notice the contrast there. If, if I am plucking up, it is for the purpose of planting. We're, we, never, we never do anything. There is never a diminishing of something without God's desire to bring an increase of something. So that doesn't mean, parents, that you should never offer a word of correction to your children or a word of criticism if the criticism is meant to be, what? Constructive. So there's a way we receive the truth spoken in love, right? Sometimes we can hear the truth spoken in love and we might think, oh man, you're tearing me down. No, I'm really not tearing you down. I'm telling you the truth in love and and the purpose might be to break down or to tear down some things that are inside of us. Has God ever done that with you? Have you ever found that there are things maybe that you've put around your heart or things that you've erected in your life and God has come along through the circumstances that he allows to happen in your life and he tears those things down? But what's the purpose of God tearing those things down? The purpose is that he wants to establish something that's healthy, something that's better, something that is more conformed to the life and the character and the nature of who he is. So speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual song, edifying one another, the Spirit should govern our communication with one another. So to be filled with the Spirit is to be filled with edification, building up, not destroying. And then he says this, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. So we're communicating with one another in a certain way because as we talk about being filled with the Spirit, we're going to see that this 
This absolutely has to do with relationship. So the Spirit is to control our attitude and our actions in our relationship, not only to one another, but to the Lord. So he says, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. This is praise. When is God worthy of our praise? Or let me ask you this, is there ever a time that he is not worthy of our praise? Now, I didn't say you always feel like praising him, because if we just praise him when we feel like it, then then we might not, we, we definitely would not praise him as often as we should, because he is never not worthy of our praise. So what happens a lot of times is we tie our circumstances to our praise. So, man, you know, I'll bet you if anyone in this building today won the lottery and you found out you just became a couple of hundred million dollars richer, you probably wouldn't have much problem praising God, right? I bet you wouldn't. But what if the reverse happened? What if you find yourself in a situation like Job was in? Where not only did you not win the lottery, but you just found out that what you thought you had just got taken away from you. Is God, in that situation, is God any less worthy of our praise? Well, he's not. But it might be a lot more difficult to praise him in that situation than it would be in the other. I know those are two extreme circumstances, but you understand what I'm saying. So singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. So the Spirit should govern our communion with the Lord. To be filled with the Spirit is to be filled with praise. So in other words, we're glorifying Him instead of doing what the children of of Israel did when they came out of Egypt. They grumbled and complained. Constantly they grumbled and complained. They didn't glorify God, they grumbled against God. And so, to be spirit-filled is to find ourselves, to, to live in this place where circumstances are not dictating whether I'm glorifying God or grumbling and complaining to God. That I understand that independent of my circumstances, God is worthy to be praised. And can I have a song in my heart making melody to the Lord, period? unconditionally, regardless of the condition I might find myself in. So the Spirit is to control our attitude and our actions in our relationship or in our communion with the Lord. And so Paul kind of clarifies in the very next verse, in verse 20, he says, giving thanks always for all things to God. I, I'm not going to lie to you, that's, that's a challenge. Giving, look at that, giving thanks always for all things to God. So the Spirit is to control our attitude and our actions in the midst of our circumstances, good, bad, or ugly. He didn't say giving thanks always when things are going really good. He said giving thanks always for all things. That's unconditional for all things to God. Well, how are we going to do that? See, the, when the world hears a statement like that, it sounds unreasonable. And, and 
trying to understand this in the natural, it's hard to do. Because naturally, you can't do this. You might fake it till you make it, but you, you can't do this in the natural. You can only do this by the Spirit. That's why Paul tells us, he commands us to do these things in the context of being filled with the Spirit. Because Paul understands, in my natural man, through the will of my flesh, I cannot give thanks to God for all things. Because there's just some things I, I, that, that come into my life that I can't, I can't figure out why I'm to be thankful for this. But if I, if I lean not on my own understanding... Because see, my human tendency, my tendency as a man, as a natural man, is to want to look at a situation and try to figure out, okay, now, now what am I supposed to do with this? Now, now why should I be thankful for this? Well, I, I can't figure out any reason why I should be thankful for this. I don't see anything to be thankful about in this situation. And I'm trying to reason this out with my own understanding. Was what, what does the writer of Proverbs say? says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. You're going to come upon circumstances in your life where you cannot lean on your own understanding. If you do, you'll never be able to give thanks to God. Matter of fact, you might spend much of your life trying to figure out why on earth God allowed that, God, whatever, however you want to describe it, And you might struggle with bitterness. You might struggle with anger. You might struggle with an attitude toward God that's anything but thankfulness or thanksgiving. So what does Paul say? He said, giving thanks always, not sometimes, but always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we see that the Spirit of God should govern our confession in our countenance, in all things. I don't believe that that means we have to like all things. We shouldn't live in denial and say, well, you know, this is really a great thing that's happened to me. Well, maybe it's not a great thing that's happened to you, really and truly. But, but even though it's not a great thing that's happened to me, can I be thankful? I can be thankful, why? Because God stands above the circumstances of our life. And if I can say nothing else, I can say, you know what, I don't understand why this has happened. I don't understand how this has happened. But I know God is Lord. I know who I belong to. I know who my Lord is. I know who my good shepherd is. I know that when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, when I walk through darkness and I can't, See myself where I'm going. His rod and his staff is there to comfort me. He touches me with that staff and he lets me know that he is there leading me and guiding me even though I can't discern the path myself. And I can be thankful not for the path, but I can be thankful for the shepherd that leads me on the path. And and here's the hope that is pictured in this psalm. He leads me through the valley. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? Because his rod and his staff, they comfort me. He has prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. There's two ways to think of that word table. It's not just a, 
dining room table, it is that. But if we're talking about sheep and tables, sheep didn't eat at dining room tables. They, they ate upon tables. The word in the Spanish, I believe, is mesa. You know what a mesa is? It's a high elevated place. When you come up out of the valley of shadow onto a table, onto a mesa, and upon that mesa there is spread before the sheep the beautiful green meadows of grass. And this is where the shepherd is leading the sheep. And sometimes it's through the valley of shadow, through the valley of darkness, but, but even though we can't see the path, there is the staff that touches me, that lets me know I should not fear because the shepherd is with me. And he has prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemy. Yes, there are enemies around me, but who is watching over me to protect me? The shepherd is. The shepherd is. And so the Spirit is to govern our confession and our countenance in all things. To be filled with the Spirit is to be filled with thanksgiving, finding peace with gratitude, with thankfulness, not finding fear with fault. Fear and thankfulness are contrary to one another. It's very difficult to be fearful and to be thankful. You can't be fearful and be at peace. And this is a picture of thankfulness, which also is a picture of peace. So it's, it's to be filled with thanksgiving, finding peace in the midst of that for which I am thankful. And the Spirit is to control our attitude and our actions toward one another. So Paul, let's read, let's read from verse 18. Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. So the Spirit is to control our attitude and our actions toward one another in the Lord. Submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. This is a picture of the, of the body of Christ. And the language that the Scripture uses throughout is not accidental. So, for instance, when Paul likens the believers to a body, and we are the members and Christ is the head, there's a reason he does that. And God created the human body. Do you ever wonder why we don't have two heads? Why we only have one head? Or why don't we have three or four or five? We just evolved that way, right? No, that's the way God created us. Why? Because he created everything to give us a picture of how, of how his universe is governed, how, how he is governed, how, how he governs himself, if you will. How his body is governed. How is his body governed? It's governed by one head. There are many members, but there's one head of those many members. And so here Paul says, submitting to one another 
This is the body. Thankfully, right now, my feet, my legs are submitting to my head. And they're submitting to all the other parts of my body. This is why I'm not stumbling. This is why I'm able to pace, to walk without falling down. Remember, God gave us big toes for a reason. He gave us toes and feet. I mean, he, he gave us those things because they all work together to enable us to function properly. The effective working. Your body's many members brought together under one head to work effectively. And how do they do that? Because they are submitted to one another. So all the different parts of the body have different functions. They're all different members, but they're all connected and they're all submitted to one another, which enables all of these thousands of different members of your body to function as one. We are many members of the body of Christ, but we are to function as one just as our natural bodies do if they're healthy. So submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. The Spirit should govern our community with one another as the body in Christ, who is our head, our one head. So to be filled with the Spirit is to be filled with meekness. And we're doing the Beatitudes on Wednesday night. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That word meek is a really interesting word. Speaks of humility. Submission speaks of humility. But meekness is an attribute that makes no claim for itself. It's interesting, as we were reading in Acts chapter 4 last week, one of the things that it... that the early church was known for... Let me read it to you again. It said in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart, of one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. In other words, they relinquished their claim upon anything. Now, it didn't mean that they didn't own things. But it's kind of like, it's like the saying in Spanish that says, mi casa es su casa. My house is your house. This may be my house, but when you're in my house, this is like your house. When people come to my house, I tell them, look, just treat it like your house. Just make yourself at home. Eat what you want, drink what you want, rummage in the refrigerator if you want. Just make yourself at home. And, and, and really, I mean that. And this is, this is what was happening in the early church. They had all things in common. No one counted anything that was technically, legally their own as their own. They exhibited meekness. This is what meekness is. They made no claim. They made no claim. Jesus did not stand upon his deity. He made no claim according to his deity. In fact, Philippians 2.5 says... Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ, who humbled himself, who who took on human flesh and humbled himself, became as a man, even to the point of death and death on the cross. The most despised death that a human being could die was the death on a tree. 
And Jesus died the most despised and shameful death that a human being could die. This is why he was called accursed. But yet he did not stand on his deity. He did not stand on any of his rights. He humbled himself. This is the epitome of meekness. Submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. It's meekness. To be filled with the Spirit is to be filled with meekness. Submission, not manipulation. Relinquishing, not trying to gain or hold on to control. To relinquish that kind of control is fearful. And how will you be able to do that? How will you relinquish control of your life to the Lord if you're bound up by fear? And what is it that's holding you bound? What is it that makes you fearful to relinquish control of your life to the Lord? It's fear. Well, if I, if, if I do this, then what's going to happen if... You go ahead and complete the sentence. Well, if I really give... God, control of my life. What's going to happen if we may all complete the sentence differently, but the bottom line is the problem is we're fearful. And we're fearful because we don't have a revelation of the love of God. So 1 John, 1 John says, and we know that fear involves torment, but perfect love casts out all fear. Perfect love casts out all fear. It's not my perfect love for him. It's the knowledge of his perfect love for me. If I know that God loves me perfectly, then what am I fearful of? If you know that God loves you perfectly, then what are you fearful of? That's a question we need to continually ask ourselves. Because... The very moment you get over one thing, the moment you're able to relinquish control in one area and, and conquer that, I promise you there's going to be another area of your life that's going to come up. That's why this is called a walk of faith. That's why Paul likens this to a race. A race is not stagnant. A race is not run in one place. A race is run along a course. And we have a course of life that we are running along, that we are traveling. And we have to trust God every step of the way on our course. And the course will change, and the circumstances will change, and we will change, but God never changes. God does not change. And so the same God that I could trust in that situation 15 years ago that I could not see how on earth he could come through for me, but he did, is the same God that I'm going to trust in my situation right now. And the same God I'm going to have to trust in the situation that's, that's ahead of me that I don't even know about. You guys realize that? There are things ahead of you that you don't even know about in life. But, but the same God that you're trusting in now, that you trusted in before, is who you're going to have to trust in in those situations that are yet unknown to you. And it is the Spirit of God on the inside of you that gives you the power to do that. To relinquish control. 
So we see that being filled with the Spirit is about relationship. It begins with our relationship in submission to the Spirit. So we want to believe that being filled with the Spirit is just as easy as someone pouring oil on my head or someone praying over me. Now listen, this is something that you work out with fear and trembling. This is what Paul meant when he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do according to His good pleasure. So the Spirit of God is in me by the grace of God. Now I have to walk in submission to that Spirit. I have to submit myself, surrender myself, and allow that Spirit to control me. Allow that Spirit to fill me. When fear wants to rise up, I've got to allow the Spirit of God in me to begin to give me a revelation of God's perfect love for me. How am I going to do that? Prayer? Yes. Meditation? Yes. Get in the Word. Read what the Scripture says about who God is, about His love for you, what He has done. We should never, ever, ever question God's love for us because He has proven it by sending His Son, by allowing His Son to die on a cruel cross. He has proven His love. He has given us His Spirit as a guarantee, as a down payment, as earnest that His Word is true, that His promise shall be kept, that we are indeed His children, and we can, in reality, trust Him and relinquish control to Him. So it's about our relationship in submission to the Spirit. It defines our relationships with one another, how we communicate with one another. It determines how we relate to the Father in the midst of our circumstances. Am I going to be thankful when I understand and when I don't understand, when I can figure it out and when I can't figure it out, when I can see the purpose and when I can't see the purpose? Can I live a life filled with thanksgiving in spite of my circumstances, the Spirit. Only by the Spirit can we do that. It governs that relationship that we have to the Father, how we relate to Him in our communion with Him. And it always returns to our relationship with one another in submission to God. It always brings us back to the reality and the truth that we are a body. You can't live your Christian life apart and unto yourself any more than my hand can live apart from this body. Cut this hand off from this body and it is dead. It is useless. I can pretend it's alive. I can keep it and preserve it and say, look, this is my hand. It's useful to me. But in reality, if it's not connected to my body, it's nothing. God didn't make any of us to be disconnected. He made all of us to be connected, joined in one life, in unity under one head. So being filled with the Spirit always brings us back to this point of relationship, of how we relate to one another in our relationship in Christ. Or as Jesus commands that we love one another as He has loved us. Submitting to one another in love as Christ submitted Himself in love for us. really was not the nails, the bindings that held Jesus to the cross. It really was his love. At any moment, he could have chosen 
He said, hey, I could call legions of angels to my aid. But he did not. He would not. Because he would not go against the eternal purpose. But in reality, it was his love that carried him to the cross, that held him on the cross, that carried him through that. It was his love. He submitted himself in love for us. So we are commanded to be filled with the Spirit, to be people who are building up, to be people who are full of praise, to be people who are full of thanksgiving, to be people who are meek, who make no claim for ourselves, but understanding that all is His, and we are His, therefore we shall inherit the earth. It's a wonderful promise that God has made to us in Christ. Amen? Let's all stand. Now, as we get ready to end today, I just want to invite you as we pray, I just want to take a couple of minutes here. Believe it or not, it's five minutes till. Y'all should take a picture of that clock and show it to my wife. She'll never believe but she would say, but you're not through talking yet. So, but I want to take just a couple of minutes. And I really want to invite you to just, I just want you to close your eyes right now. And I want you to think about the things in your life. You know, I always tell people this. If you'll ask God an honest question, God will give you an honest answer. Whether you get that answer right away or not, if you really want an answer from God, if you'll patiently wait, God in His time, will give you the answer. The question is, are we prepared for the answer that He might give us? And here's the question I want you to ask of God. I want you to ask God, I want you to say, Lord, what is it in my life that is that I'm holding on to, that I'm unwilling to relinquish control of? Lord, what area of my life am I unwilling to let go of? What area of my life am I insisting on holding on to and controlling? And I just want you to ask the Lord and just say this. Just say, God, would you reveal to me the areas of my life that I'm afraid to release to you? Will you reveal those to me, Lord? And will you help me in meekness relinquish my claim on those things and trust you to be the Lord of my life. That you would fill me with your spirit, God, and by the power of your spirit, I would be able to just relinquish control of my life to you. Now, some of you may automatically know the areas of your life that you're struggling to release to God. Some of you, it may be a matter of greater reflection. It doesn't really matter. I promise you, all of us, myself included, have areas of our lives that we are struggling to release to God. Jesus did not come to this earth. He did not die on a cross so that we could remain in control of our lives. He came and He died so that we could die, so that we would be crucified with Him, 
so that we would be raised in His life, that He would become our life. And that we would become members of His body who live under the control of His life, of His Spirit. Father, I pray today that You would reveal to us the areas of our life that we are trying to maintain control. That God, You would, in Your grace and by Your Spirit, help us to release control of our lives into Your hands. I pray, God, that You would take away all of our fear as you reveal your perfect love for us. I pray, God, that you would make that love known in greater and greater measure. And the fear that controls our lives would become less and less. Help us, Lord, as your sons and daughters, to walk filled with the Spirit, to walk and to live in the control of the Spirit of God. That our lives, Lord, would manifest your life, your nature. That our lives would be a witness to the world that Christ is the only Savior. That the Father indeed sent the Son and that that Son is the only Savior of the world. Let your church bring glory and honor to your name. Let her be a witness in the darkness of this world. Father, we pray this today to your glory. And everybody said, Amen. We'll give the Lord a good hand. Now, I pray, seriously, I, I pray that you make it a matter of prayer. You know, some of you, maybe if you journal, Maybe you need to write some things down and just spend some time with God and let God begin to reveal some things to you. Go to the Word. Go to prayer. And let the Spirit of God, invite the Spirit of God to begin to work in your heart to break down those areas so that God can establish His fullness in your life. Amen? God bless you. I love you. Have a great day. If you want prayer for anything, if you have a question about anything I've talked about, please come. Let's have a conversation. Uh, If not, have a great day. We'll be here tonight at 5.30 for the Truth Project. And be sure and tell Nick, happy birthday. God bless you.